This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Hi, I'm Jesse. I am Paul Weimer. <laughs> Hi, I'm Marissa. <laughs> <laughs> I am Blink 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 Brian. <laughs> <laughs> oh god! Oh god! I had a feeling somebody would do that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> if it's you gonna really, be the whole podcast now. <laughs> yeah. If you really, really need to, you can get out your ukulele and accompany it, and then it gets the full effect. <laughs> um, although that might insult my Strach um, or Strach, Strach, Strach. Yeah. Yeah. So we're going to talk about uh, the 1961 Jack Vance uh, short story, oh, novelette, uh, novella, whatever it is. Uh, the Moon Moth, and um, I haven't read enough Jack Vance. I think that's my conclusion. Uh, thinking about like why I like this story a lot, and I haven't read a lot of other Jack Vance. Oh, dude! I dude. know. Yeah, I know. Yeah, me either. Okay, well, this is not my first time reading this story. Um, I think I probably read it first in that uh, uh, Hall of Fame, Science Fiction Hall of Fame mm-hmm. uh, collection. Um, Paul, I assume you read this story before. I've read this. This is one of my favorite Jack Vance stories, period. Yeah, I think a lot of people like it. And Brian, I assume you've read it before. Uh, I've read it several times. I've uh, heard the, uh, I think it's a seeing year production. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, no, I'm a lifelong Vance fan. I've I've always enjoyed his writing. But uh, Marissa, is this your first? Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, So... uh, we're all fanboys. What do you think? What do you think of this story? Um, it was good. I liked it. I, I like <laughs> it as a as a setting and a culture and experience. Like the story is like pretty simple, but yeah, I enjoyed yeah. it. It, it, it. Does it feel very science fictiony to you? No, it didn't. <laughs> it I felt, have a feeling. It, that's, yeah, that's a very Vancean sort of thing. I mean. The, he doesn't go for high technology, weird, weird transhumanism, s- extrapolating stuff. He he goes for really deep, interesting, unique cultures and settings, and puts people in them and lets them go. Yeah, I would have I would have put it more in like the fantasy area than science fiction. Anyway, it's it's got a science fiction setting. Um, but it feels like fantasy, totally. Yeah, this is a this is a, a good example of uh, what some call anthropological science fiction. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's a big deal in the '60s and uh, and '70s. You could see it with like Ursula Le Guin um, or the uh, Pension book we read. What was it? Uh, Rite of Passage. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So mm-hmm. you use a scientific uh, setup in an alien world, and then you set up an alien. Uh, it could be human, but still alien, other, different to us, uh, society, and uh, have people work their way through it. I mean, Dune um, might be the biggest example of this. Um, yeah. yeah. And you don't actually, need hard SF to really work. Yeah, and I think actually I, I got that fantasy tone because I was listening to it first, and I was just, I kept on hearing about goblins and stuff, and I was like, what is this thing I'm listening to? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, he's, uh, he wrote a lot, of, a lot of fantasy, um, or has a fantastic feel to it. Um, but, uh, 
Mm-hmm. No, I definitely see that. I mean, the, there's there's like the fantasy element of that, where they're all putting on these um, these uh, selves that don't exist. Mm-hmm. Virtual. Can you are you man enough to wear a sea dragon conqueror? You know. <laughs> <laughs> but are you bold enough? Right. Yeah. All right. So, uh, I mean, uh, I've read this story many times. I assume, like at least three or four times, I've heard the audio drama, which um, I hope everybody got a chance to hear, Paul. Oh yeah! Oh yes! I couldn't resist. I had. I had told you I had already long since had it. So yeah, I just mm. like chewed it up and listened to it again. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And Marissa, did you get a chance to hear the audio drama? I did. Yes. Oh, good. Okay. Um, so interestingly, they're almost exactly the same length, um, and they it follows the plot fairly faithfully, if not perfectly faithfully. There's just a couple of little niggling things here and there for me. Um, it changes the order. Um, we see some scenes from other characters' point of views that we don't in the, the original. But um, I, I'm very impressed by the. I mean, that was. And, and, and we go a little more linearly with with the audio drama, is and we have yes. the previous we have the previous ambassadors' folly come out first, which is good because that shows right away to the listener. Okay, if you screw up in this culture, bad things happen. So it's a, it's a nice foregrounding that no, they're not just quiet people with masks. If you don't get the culture, you will die. Right. It's a masterful, masterful uh, adaptation. I, it, I can't really like when I try and picture a a, a, a film or a TV adaptation. I, I can't imagine it as a TV adaptation unless it was like nothing we've ever seen before, really. Yeah, uh, because I it's feel so. Like... So go for it. No, go ahead. Sorry, finish. Well, it's just like it's so. It feels like it's very relaxing. Feels very ponderously um, beautiful in the description of the gorgeous description of of everything, and yet the plot is is very um, stressful <laughs> and pay, and actually fairly um, uh, quickly paced. Um. But it's the world that I care about more than the story, if you know what I mean. And that's not usually the case for me. I'm um, usually I think it's because I keep trying to figure out what's going on. Like, how does this work? Right. It's 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 kind of the um, it's it's he's like the Larry Niven of economics and and uh, culture. Oh, if yes. you know what I mean. I know exactly what you mean. And I think you're absolutely right. That's that's a great way to praise him, because. If you read some of his other, any of his other novels and stories, I mean, he just turns out culture after culture after culture on plants, and they're all different. They're all strange to us, and they all seem to, at least from the point of view of the story, work together in in a way in a way that Niven can build a ring world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, one of one of the little flaws I I think I found in the uh, audio drama is there's a scene we see from the point of view of um the bad guy um haxo angmark which is a great name all the names in here are actually great that's a uh, vance actually vance's uh yeah um the the issue was he he basically robs a guy and steals his mask which happens in the book but we don't see it from uh haxo's point of view right and then um he steals his money belt and I'm like, 
Uh huh. Yeah. There's no money belt, is yeah, there? Yeah. That 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 was that was the slip in the art of drama because everything is paid for by your prestige or straw. Or Woofy is uh, now that I think about it, right? That for a doctor or thing that I thought was oh, I forgot that Jack Vance kind of invented this already. Um, and uh, and it's it's uh, the the economics is so fascinating that I I just literally can get lost in thinking about you know wow this is a, I want to walk these streets although I'm I'm frightened to want to walk <laughs> these streets and figure out what's going on because. Um, at one, I think it's in the audio drama as well. It's not in the story. Um, somebody says, my father is a magistrate. <laughs> right? And I'm like, I don't think there are any magistrates in this world. It's a very, liber- it's a very libertarian society. Yeah, it's and like I, Texas or Texas well, with, you know, the gun gunslingers on every corner. And or... Yeah, and I usually don't like that sort of societies in real life or in fiction. I mean, <laughs> see, following L. Neil Smith. But Vance makes it work that a very, very rich planet where the people have plenty of time and energy to do whatever they want because the the world is just so rich, they can, they can afford to go for for libertarianism and... Just like people do what they want. I mean, God forbid if the Sirenese decided to militarize and use their riches to conquer the galaxy, we'd all be in trouble. I get the sense that that's not even a possibility, though. No, their uh, cult, the culture prevents them from, yeah, expansionist uh, sort of ideas, but it would be terrifying if their culture had been re- retuned towards that. They've got a decadence going that you, you don't see like it's it's a richer decadence than you can see like pretty much anywhere in all of world history or or um you know fantasy really because what what i love and i just think about this is so awesome there's the nightmen right and they don't really play any role in the story this is why it feels like it's it's a role-playing game right Mm -hmm. characters could have gone in any direction and solved sort of any issue and the nightmen are just there as sort of a, a background, right? A background menace that's not even that menacing. Unless you're a poor um, slave who has to hide on the dock for three days or under the dock while he listens to the feet of the nightman above him running around trying to cannibalize whatever's on the shore. Yep. And, like, apparently nightmen don't have canoes or anything. <laughs> no, I, 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 I interpret the nightmen as being uh, indigenous humanoid aborigines that have no technology but they go around and if they catch you they will eat you but they can't they'll even build boats uh, I, I i i like i want to read a story where somebody gets captured by the nightmen and we actually see their society because i think that that's a, a, a entirely a plausible reading the way you've got it paul but i think another way to go is that it's just the rejects from the strock society right that they've just they said no we're not going to do this stupid uh <clears throat> social status um you know i mean it's this is far weirder than any kind of uh marxian communism in in economics i think but jesse the might men they might have their faces uncovered that would be horrible <laughs> be <laughs> when he see when he sees the fish in the water and he's embarrassed 
<laughs> because it has a face. It, it yeah. shows he's acclimating. And that's yeah, a lovely awesome. little bit of detail. It's like, oh, he's starting to get this place. I mean, he's crappy with his instruments. He can't sing properly, but he's starting to acculturate to the culture. That's wonderful. I, mm-hmm. I, I My favorite part of the story at the end, I'm going to read it for everybody because this is my favorite exchange. And this shows being hoisted by his own petard. This is at the end. Hacksaw Angmark has got Thistle. He's going to go kill him. But then everyone that Thistle is upset in the last couple of days has shown up to deal in Thistle. And ha- and here we go. But he's a criminal, cried Angmark. He's notorious, infamous. What are his misdeeds, sang the forest goblin. He has murdered, betrayed. He has wrecked ships. He has tortured, blackmailed, robbed, sold children to slavery. He has... The forest goblin stopped him. Your religious convictions are of no importance. We can vouch, however, for your present crimes. It's like Hakso Angmark, who ad- was conversant in this culture and adapted to it, and that was part of the problem, is hoisted by his own petard. Like, the the Sionese don't care what Hakso Angmark done, and so it's like, oops, you made a mistake. You misunderstood the culture that you were trying to infiltrate. Bad yeah. on you, Axo. And that's why that ending is is it it fits so well with the society. Um, you know, we don't know what our hero is doing, um, and I love his name, Thistle. Right? Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it, it means something. I, I haven't figured out what it is, but he's kind of sticky. Um, kind of annoying. <laughs> like a thistle, know? yeah. Yeah, like a thistle. And um, <laughs> Haxo Angmark, what a great name. That, 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 that's, that's a, as Brian said, that's a, that's a fancy and trademark for unusual names that work, don't sound dissonant, mm-hmm. but are definitely not ordinary Earth names. He just, like, goes for it. And I don't know how and why he was able to craft, craft names that just don't sound like, oh, that's not a name. They, but there's like no names you would ever encounter in real life, and yet they work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's he's figured out the philology of of our our language and hacked it. Yeah, <laughs> yes, he has. Edward, not Edward, Edward Thistle, and it's no T in Thistle, right? Or no second T, anyways. Yeah. Um, you know, there is a story by David D. Levine that totally reminds me of this, and it. I, it's um, it's it's not as good, and I think the reason it's not as good is it's just it's doing the same thing. It's just, but it's it's still really a great story. Um, you guys may know it. It, it was uh, won the Hugo for two thousand six uh, best short story. It's called. Tick, tick, tick. Oh um, yes. And uh, I'll just read the Wikipedia entry for it. Uh, this story is about a penniless human salesman trying to sell software on an alien planet populated by giant, intelligent, impersonal, yet very humble insects, many light years from Earth. The main character, Walker, has trouble with everything from his ability to sell his computer systems and gadgets to paying for his hotel and participating in a local religious holiday. In the end, he finds a uniquely spiritual restaurant that changes his life. It's, it's like... Um, it's I've never been to Japan, but it's it's like what I sense, like getting off the boat and walking the streets of Japan would be like you're just making mistake after mistake. Right. You just don't know anything about what you're doing. Um, you're insulting everybody with your every breath. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and everyone else is perfectly happy with the ridiculous things that they're doing. <laughs> it's like, what? How does this work? 
I mean, uh, Paul, you were saying how much you love this story, but it's, it's actually a dystopian, right? It's, it, right? There's slaves everywhere. There's nightmen. Um, you can have anything you want just as long as you're willing to fight for it, right? Uh, prestige for it, yeah, yeah, yeah. What makes you have prestige, though, right? It, it, I mean, it all comes down to in the end, um, the it's dispersonalized. You know, there, I, I don't think there is a government at all, um, because everyone carries weapons around scimitars and uh, laser blasters and whatever it is. Um, how do they take their slaves, right? <laughs> I don't think uh, it's for, you know by um giving them honors i think it's it's all violence based right yeah yeah it's not a place i would want to live but to visit and photograph and see and absorb <laughs> the culture absolutely but I, I i would probably wear a very humble mask so that no one would try to <laughs> yeah no one would think i was above my straw and challenge me and my lack of musical instrument capability would get me into trouble real fast so I mean, I don't know if I'd wear precisely a moon moth, but something of that caliber because, yeah, I couldn't rock a sea dragon conqueror. <laughs> and that would get um, me killed in 10 minutes. <laughs> well, what, it also reminds me of, like, if you think about how uh, Saudi society works, right? The, there's the there's the in, inner, you know, in your own home, nobody wears veils and all that stuff, right? That's only in public. Um, but here, I... I if we had a married couple, wouldn't they like never show their faces to each other? Mm-hmm. Feels like it, yeah. And the children, how do you deal with the well, children? As soon as a kid's born, you like. But well, they, they mentioned because the, 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 in the uh, in the story, I don't think it's actually in the drama. There's a little kid who wears a mock mask that mm. that that he runs into. So yeah, even from a young age, as soon as you're young enough to understand that mask goes on you and that's what you wear. It could be also like he kind of mentions in that afterward at the end that um, it's basically like clothes. Like we wouldn't walk mm-hmm. around naked and it, you would kind of get shouted at if you walked around the streets naked. But yeah, maybe oh, husbands yeah. and wives take their masks off at night and like <laughs> see each other's faces. And <laughs> yeah, uh, it could be in that context. Uh, certainly this all. You know, he doesn't have, although there's some implication, um, I'm not sure if it's only in the audio drama, that um, the, the, the slaves are for having sex with as well as, um, you know, just. Oh, body, then, oh, that's definitely in the story. Stuff. That's in the story, too. He's like, wouldn't you like a young female? Like, yeah, it's obvious why you would want the young female. So, again, yeah, that, that reinforces the whole dystopian that slaves are basically there to be used. And they they they. This will borrows them and trades them like yeah like they're basically chattel so yeah that they're not they're not even considered that human so I mean so that when Thistle is uh, unmasked and he drags like, like give give me even a slave cloth I mean that's, that's like give yeah just that's even better than being unmasked in the society but it's not much better mm-hmm. and without um I want to get Brian to answer some of this for me because I, I have questions and I'm not sure anybody can answer them but I want to hear very strong arguments that convince me of something because I, I feel very lost in this world and I, I only have questions but uh, like imagine at the end of the story he, some guy offers him a, a houseboat and he says I've been working on it for 17 years right uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that's a lot of time to be working on this thing like without a um, 
in Cory Doctorow's Woofy system, right? Isn't it like publicly? There's a public ledger or something where you can go and check somebody's Woofy. Yeah, it's like blockchain. Yeah, it's like a block, some sort of blockchain technology. Um, but here, uh, I, I think there's a robot in the audio drama, but there isn't. There isn't. Is there any electronic devices at all, really, in the uh, in the in the story proper? I don't remember any. Uh, elect- electronic devices in the story proper. They mention that there's a an electric instrument. That's of, right. That's right. There's one electric. You're right. It's like a little, and and I'm like just practically speaking, this is maybe what I'm worried about in the uh, in the video, you know, adaptation. Like, do they have all these like things, all these instruments like hanging from their belt, all of them? Because there's like 14 of them. <laughs> it's, like it's, like, it's, it's like a bat belt, and they must be tiny. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, or I was thinking maybe there's like a whole slave of train, uh, a train slave behind them, and they're all holding. Uh, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> no, no, it's, it's, they're meant to be on. You're not carrying all fourteen at the same time. I mean, if you're going, if you're st- standing around in your house, you're just going to need the Heimerkin for your slaves, and maybe one or two average ones for if someone stops by. If you're going to town, you'll take. The requisite one. So, it's it's a matter of this culture is so ornate and complex that you would know what kind of instruments you need for various situations. Oh, I'm going to a party. There might be people mm-hmm. above me or below me. I will I will take this instrument, that instrument, and this instrument, and that will get me covered. Because mm-hmm. because because consider Edward at some points doesn't have quite the requisite instruments, so he's got to. He's got to manage as best he can, and I imagine that's a way there's friction in society. If you don't have precisely the instrument with you, and you couldn't because, I mean, there's at least 14 instruments floating around, then you have difficulties. Or like when he goes in the mask shop and he talks to the guy, and the guy, the guy is not, not having it. He goes back into his room and gets the right instrument for the job. That's that's the way this culture works. Like, oh, but I'll, I'll just get it because it's right here, but if he was met mm-hmm. him on the street, then... He wouldn't been able to have do, done that. So uh, with with the of the four, there's four human, oh, four or five human aliens. The uh, the aliens on this planet also seem human as well, right? They they have the nightmare, uh, you mean? Well, no, just the, the, the anthropoids, right? Uh, the 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 native. Well, the natives are humans. Yeah, everybody's human. Even no, the nightmen, I think, are human. I, I don't. Th- I don't. I think necessarily nightmen. Maybe, maybe are, you're right. Are maybe human. You're right. I, I, I think of them as orcs in the sense of they're they're non-human cannibals. They don't count. Sure. But this is just a weird human culture. There are four, four outsiders on the planet, including Edward. Right, and but then, you can't. You couldn't tell them. You can uh, the outsiders if you unmask them and compared them with the. Right. With the, uh, They'd be the same. Cyrenians. Yeah, um, you would see essentially humans. Maybe they're a little pale faced because they never take their masks off or whatever. Yeah. But it would be essentially humans. Um, so that uh, admits, I think, that there's a previous culture in this gal- galaxy or whatever that's colonized these places and then re- people return to it and the consular representative. Mm-hmm. Is is one of four outsiders, not including Haxo Angmark, right? Um, and 
One of them is like the official company representative. The other one is a anthropologist. Um, I can't remember what the other two are, but what's the like? I, and I want to ask this to Brian specifically because you okay. read that uh, Piketty book, <laughs> um, and I think that prepares you to be answer my economics questions. Even though I, you know, I I studied economics too, I, but I don't I don't understand like. How can they have trade with this world? Like, you, you bring down a ship, and you've got a, a whole bunch of trade goods. How do you, like, exchange cultural objects uh, of value with these people? You'd need to uh, have something like a trade port. <clears throat> you need to have something where they built up an exchange. Um, and uh, that would be fun to imagine how they would do it. It's, a, it's virtually impossible. Like I cannot think of how it's done. Well, how about if you have um, if you have people who hold value, and, mm. uh, and that's their job uh, in the trade port. Right. Yes. There we go. Yeah. Uh, maybe that's where all those slaves come from. <laughs> yeah, it could be. It could be. Um, at one point, uh, this no, not this. One of the one of the um, uh, planetary uh, representatives. Um, the outsiders who live there, uh, what are they? What are they called? Expatriates, right? Yeah, expats. Yeah. One of the expatriates uh, threatens his slave. Well, I will return you to the islands if you don't obey me. <laughs> right. Uh, apparently, that's a bad place to go to. Um, yeah. Yep. Yeah, apparently, slavery is better than living yeah. in destitute. Yeah, on a destitute island. And I think it, it's also in our background that. The reason all this is possible is because food is incredibly plentiful. Um, obviously, land is not at a premium either. Um, but most people live on live on houseboats, right? And and, the, and, 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 and and the city is mainly canals and docks. I mean, I mean, think of it. Think of it kind of like Venice in a way. Yeah, yeah. Which just adds to that richness and sumptuous because you know, or maybe you don't know, Jesse. I mean. When he was in the Merchant Marine, Jack mm-hmm. Vance traveled all around the world on mm-hmm. having adventures. So, did yeah. he go to Venice? I don't know specifically that he did, but I can imagine that he <clears> would have <throat> if he could have. And he's just like, okay, masks, Venice. I, can I really a... had that kind of feel. Like I was totally yeah. imagining Venice the whole time. I could, I could yeah. work with that, and yeah. so he did. Yeah, I was thinking more. Um, if you guys have read the. So the Dunsanian um, stories by Lovecraft or even, you know, Idle Days on the Yan by Lord Dunsany, where you've got sort of a a fantasy East, right, where everybody is uh, very Eastern, <laughs> sort of the Europeans imagination of what the East, the East is like with all these decadent closed cultures you know, what Korea would be like, uh, thinking about it from an Italian point of view, you know, aha, there's a very strange hermit kingdom and they have the, all these strange practices and weird spicy food that we've got to get. Um, how do you open a trade trade relation with these people? And yet um, it's not, it's not, they're not Koreans, right? Because <laughs> Koreans don't have this mask thing. You know, it's, it, it is, it's, it's his own invention. But uh, and he's right with the afterward. Uh, he's 
you know, all the time. I mean, this is when I wandered the streets around here, right? I, I always lament, and I just read in the paper that some some fools, some happy fools, have opened up a bookstore in the neighboring city. <laughs> like, <laughs> oh, you happy fools! I hope you uh, have a deep pockets, right? Because <laughs> it's not, it's not what people want. People don't want books. Because when I wander around here, I see a nail salon, skin salon, right? Nail and hair salon. Oh. Tooth, tooth, oh. tooth whitening, right? You know, it's very depressing. <laughs> it is kind of like, well, okay. There's a, there's a, you know, a, a school. Okay, there's that, but it, it is like if it's not clothes and it's not skin and it's not nails and it's not hair, um, it's something else that is, is yeah, okay, we got it. Uh, uh, but the the first in, interaction in the in the uh, <clears throat> mask shop where he's trying to just get a goddamn question answered. Did you see a man come in here and did he take a, did he take something? Like that exchange goes so badly. Um, it does remind me of some of my interactions with people from different cultures who have different ways of speaking, right? And and even even um, I had a friend yeah yesterday actually my friend Steen. Uh, we were talking about uh, why, he, uh, like, I was telling him exactly why he was mad at somebody. Um, and the reason he is mad at him is because because he, that guy's not acting like a Canadian, right? <laughs> and this is really distinctive. When, you, when a Canadian goes down into the States, we act a certain way. And we don't notice it up here, right? But we notice how everyone down there is so rude. <laughs> when I bump into somebody up here... Oh my God, I'm so apologetic. When somebody bumps into me, oh my God, I'm so apologetic, right? That's right. how we are. We we have this weird thing where um, if you don't acknowledge how terrible you've been um, by bumping into someone, uh, you know, if you don't uh, give the right signals when opening and closing a door for someone else, boy, geez, you're an immoral slouch, you know? <laughs> um, <laughs> and so he's mad at. He's mad at somebody because they didn't act like the way he he thinks is common courtesy. But it is. It's just common courtesy. When I when I meet people from Iran, uh, I'm sure you guys have all met Iranians. Um, they have a way of of talking around a subject, so you don't know exactly what they mean, but you will get the sense after a while that they're getting annoyed with you because you don't understand. Um, so instead of saying you know, hey, you want a cup of coffee? Um, they say, well, not right now. And what they mean is never. <laughs> How dare you even <laughs> ask me if I want a cup of coffee? <laughs> um, whereas, like, we just don't get that, right? We're, we're, we're a lot more straight ahead. Um, you know, here's what we're expecting, or at least that's what we think. Um, so that's the kind of feeling I get when that when Thistle goes in and asks the, the shop maker. I don't think there's any way for him to... Um, know what the right thing to do there is uh at least at first but even after spending all this time in this world i'm still not sure what what he's starting to get it i'm still not 100 percent sure how he would have solved that that issue uh well the, the, the problem the problem is he should have had the right instrument and he also has too low of a strock to really familiarly engage the mask maker he was he was kind of boned that way from from the get-go i mean it would have taken someone of higher rank to have gotten the answers out of that mask maker i mean 
he sh- he should have known better. If he known a little more, he would have known not to try. But I mean, he's so desperate because you know, master 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 murderous criminal on the loose that he does he does the unthinkable and goes for it. And yeah, a bite. But in the end, but it all ends up happily because this helps to salvation in the end that he that he bumbled mm. his he, he does these bumbles and bumbles. It's, it's a kind of meritocracy at the end, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> some sort of there's some sort of meritocracy there. It's 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 also kind of strange. I like thinking about how reputation works in in the states, right? So you can be infamous, and that's still a good thing <laughs> in a certain sense. Uh, you know, you got a president who's very infamous uh, rather than you know popular famous. He's he's negative famous, um, and even like um, people who have been disgraced in some way, like. Uh, um, Bradley Manning, uh, Chelsea Manning, right? Yeah. Um, I think Chelsea Manning is now on on the board of one of those big uh, media organizations. You know, like it's not it's uh, the Hill or something like that. One of those um, online HuffPo style things, right? Uh-huh. It, you go from being a um, a reviled traitor. And many people still consider this person a reviled traitor, to a uh, to you know something of having cachet, and that's that's really weird. Uh, but on the other hand, if you know a celebrity showed up on my door, knock knock knock, um, and asked if they could sleep on my couch because I don't know uh, their car broke down or whatever. I would probably be far more forgiving of that, and, and this is pretty sad to say, than if it just some stranger had the same thing. Because they have more yeah. straw. Because right. they have some sort of more, yeah, interest. You know, their visit to me makes me higher in the society somehow. Yeah, because you gives you prestige. Like, oh, I I I gave I gave Al Pacino a. Uh, a place to sleep at night because his car broke down and right. he had no place to go. So, like, if you if you think of how selfies work, right, where people people uh, want to get selfies with celebrities, mm-hmm. it's like I, I I deliberately will not do anything of that kind. Right, I'm like fighting against it with all my might. But I know that that's not the majority of folks. At least the majority of folks who, who hang out around celebrities seem to want to. Maybe that's maybe I'm getting a false picture, but at least some percentage of people want to have their picture taken with somebody famous yeah those are the people with low strack because if the if you hang out with celebrities your strack is already higher and you don't want right. photos with them so it's actually like the it's like the low <laughs> but, but, but i was thinking about that this whole time with the story like it's our strack in our culture is like you said jesse it's not um medals or prestige it's attention mm. so and I was thinking that the whole time, like, as these masks is kind of like, it just reminded me of like Instagram people, like mm. putting on their Instagram filters and how you would never take a photo of them without those filters on. Like they would be furious if a friend wow. took a picture of them without that and made it public because wow. they get their struck from all that attention of that certain kind of like look they have. Mm-hmm. And you Maybe do get Cyrene free stuff. Is just a thousand years in our future. Or something. Yeah. And they do get free. They get sent free stuff for doing that. Like they, Wow. They sit around with their masks on, and companies will send them products. <laughs> wow. 
Yeah, that's that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I was thinking about you, Marissa, too. You're an alien. Well, yeah. New Zealanders are weirdos, too, just like Canadians, in a very different way. They're much more outgoing, I think, and, and uh, yeah, they have, I don't know, there's a, different, there's a difference in culture. Yeah, it's, for sure. And, and and they do uh, they seem to do well as travelers i notice so you you're probably fine in los angeles but you must be surrounded by a sea of weirdos as well yeah i think new zealanders have the, yeah really good luck of being like they're looked on as affectionately as aliens not like mm-hmm. you know. like they're like they're, like if if there's an australian and a new zealander in the room some people might like be upset with the Australian for some reason, but nobody's really upset with the yeah. Zealander, right? Maybe there's not enough of them to make it. Uh, People uh, love movies. Yeah, I would. I never feel like an alien as a New Zealander. I'd probably connect more as like a woman, like walking into mm. um, male-dominated areas. Like you feel, I'd feel much more like an alien in that situation and mm. having to act a certain way and mm-hmm. do this. You know, you got to be submissive and <laughs> nice and polite and say all the right <laughs> things. Like, you know, like. I connect more that like that than as a foreigner because, yeah, people don't have expectations of Kiwis so much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's the, there's no there's no cultural baggage um, that overwhelms everyone's interp. Like when I watched Shogun for the first time, like wow, I I really got an experience of. I don't know, if, Marissa, you're too young to have seen Shogun, the TV adaptation of a. Oh, I can't remember. <laughs> Probably. Oh. Well, Brian, you've seen that or read the book? Yeah, I saw the I saw the TV series, and you know, that's it was a nice uh, shock of how different a culture can be. Yeah, I mean, in the at the time, I was you know a little kid, I guess. Um, and Paul, I assume you saw Shogun. Uh, we only got to I only got to see one episode. My parents oh. sadly were bored by it. I I adored it, but my <laughs> parents didn't want to. I had already leveraged them to watch Cosmo, so I kind of had used up my struck in getting oh, to watch Oh, no! Episodes. <laughs> well, so, you, know, you know what? You might, I, I, you I, might... I, I, I saw it years later, but at the time, yeah, I didn't mm. get to see much of it. So uh, this was, uh, Marissa, this is more like a, one of those events. Back when television had three channels, or maybe four channels if you were lucky. Five. Um, five in oh, New York. Okay. No, actually, yeah. actually, more. Yeah. Channel two, two in channel New four, five, you know, seven, nine, three major 11. channels, and then there's yeah. some, affi- you know, yeah. some independents or whatever. And they had this is the time of miniseries with you know Roots or whatever, where everybody's watching television, watching the story of America's black people coming to America or whatever yeah. it is. The day now after we, the, yeah, yeah, the the closest we can come to that is when the new season of I don't whatever Netflix show comes. In. Orange is the new black, you know, or whatever it is, comes out and people are are a little bit excited about it. But this is a huge deal, and and I I don't even know how I managed to see it because we didn't have a lot of TV. But um, Shogun is it, it it does have this effect where you know a guy washes up on the beach basically, um, his he's in feudal Japan, and he has to navigate his way. He has to learn the language. <laughs> Well, in the first couple of minutes, somebody somebody says, uh, "Yeah, you made the wrong decision," and you chop somebody's head off. It's like, what the hell? <laughs> wow, <laughs> I don't know what to do now, right? It's samurais walking around swaggering and like you've offended that guy. Um, how? What did I? What did I do? What did I say? Oh, and you're disgusting and hairy too, by the way. Get out of here, right? Um, 
And so when we get uh, some sort of access to what this world is like and how it works and all that, it, it, it has that sense of um, easing us into it. Like, I, I remember learning a little bit of Japanese just as the character learns Japanese. You know, it's like, wow, that's what that means. And I can kind of almost understand what that guy just said there. That's that's an amazing feeling here. It's not a language barrier, but it, but the cultural barrier is so amped up that it feels it feels just as real in a certain sense as any other human. Oops. Sorry. Messages are you coming at all? It's <laughs> awesome struck right there. Man. Oh my god, I've lost so much track. My phone to I, when I heard the thing, I thought you were trying to. I thought you were trying to play an instrument or something. Me too. I thought he was ex- extremely emotional. He's just going to like add a few notes in there. How uh, my strike level just descended incredibly. Yeah. Sorry. For shame, I must submit myself to humbleness. <laughs> oh my. Okay. Well, um, I, I've thrown out some some strong feelings about this this story. Um, what do you guys think of the murder mystery aspect? Because I think that I I I I underappreciate it because I'm so obsessed with the world. It's it, it's a it's a very straightforward murder mystery, and but Edward's solution to figure out well, how, okay, so I know it's got to be one of these people. How do I figure out without being able to take off their masks what they would what they are? Is brilliant. Like okay, I'll take a mm. slave and. I'll take slaves from each. They'll tell me what their masters usually wear, and then I'll observe what they wear now. And if there's a big difference, then that must that must be Haxo because Haxo wouldn't know how often the guy actually take uses particular masks. And I mean, I mean, he doesn't follow through on it and gets captured pretty easily. But it's a relatively straightforward uh, way of figuring it out, and it's it's really it's a really nice little. Uh, solution to the to the problem of like if everybody is masked how do you unmask somebody you i mean now I, if, if this was a culture where nobody ever changed the masks you've been but you've been boned but you know i thought it was almost like um <clears throat> too simple like i feel like that murder mystery part was the the weak part for me and I, I wish there would have been a little bit more subtle or detailed what he did. Like, I just imagine him, like, he's like, yeah, I just charted this and charted. I can imagine him sitting there with a little Excel sheet and, like, <laughs> you know, like, it it didn't really excite me. Whereas if he'd been, like, spending time with them and noticing little subtle personality traits, I might have been a bit more engaged in that mystery solving, I think. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it, it felt like a locked planet mystery, if you know what I mean, or a locked houseboat mystery. Um yeah. Uh, it, it, it is. Um, it, there's a great uh, book series um, called by uh, Robert Van Gulik um, called uh, the Judge D Mysteries. You guys know about this series? Nope. Yeah. Oh, Brian, you do? Class- yep. Yeah, they're classics. They're really good. Yeah. Uh, so there. You know, I, I was I was not only obsessed by science fiction and fantasy when I was a younger person. I also liked Sherlock Holmes, you know, and and Agatha Christie, um, although Agatha Christie not as much as you know the uh, the original Sherlock Holmes, and I think about see Auguste Dupin, although I, I get distracted by other things going on in there, but just the whole genre of the mystery murder mystery, you know, 
detective genre is fascinating, especially when it's not the hard-boiled detective, but literally like the, here's a mystery, uh, you need to try and participate in the solving of it. It's a game. And this feels like it's it's almost there, but because of the world, I don't see it as well. But the Judge D mysteries are set in uh, feudal, uh, I don't know, uh, 500 years ago or so, um, China. And the main character is a judge. He has an assistant who's a, um, a sergeant. And basically they solve murders um, by, you know, walking into somebody's uh, philosoph- Chinese philosopher's garden and seeing the dead corpse. And then he has his, his uh, sergeant run around and ask the servants questions. And he just observes the flowers for a while and then solves the murder mystery, right? And it's like, wow, this is really, it's, it's like Sherlock Holmes, except not set in, in uh, you know, 19th century Victorian England, but rather it's set in uh, Ming China, medieval China, which is a very rich and decadent society. And that made it makes me think about how, like, I was just watching, rewatching uh, the Sharp series by Bernard Cornwall, you know, that um, TV adaptation for the Peninsula Wars, yeah, yeah, the Peninsular Wars and such. And this is this is something that we we don't we never got in Canada really at least not while I've been alive that there is a structural class system and that that is apparently still the case in England although it's much tamped down. Um, you guys are building one up very strongly up in the states right now. Yeah, <laughs> again, one we're number one. <laughs> yeah, we're number one in <laughs> plutocrats. Oh yeah. Um, yep. <laughs> so uh, there is this you know. Strach associated with going to Harvard and Yale, and if you're not one of us, um, but it's not, it's like if you've ever watched Upstairs, Downstairs, or I guess the more modern version is um, Downton Abbey. Downton Abbey, right, where you've got people whose who's best hope is that they, they can learn to read and uh, have a job that won't, won't have their baby dying of illness in the next, you know, couple of years that's the, their highest hope in society and of course that Downton Abbey is the end of that and that we, we see it in in the original um, Upstairs Downstairs as well where you know people can fall from their class position but here we've got that as well he, he's raised up in a certain sense but how one gets raised out of out of your the Strach level you're put into is it's an amazing and very difficult, like there's no, as far as I know, there's no department at university where you can study <laughs> how people change classes. Is there? Uh, sociology and anthropology would be where I would go. Well, yeah, that's the closest, but they don't really like, there's no school or technique where they show you how to do it, if you know what I mean. Well, that might be business. Yeah, business. Okay, gotcha. Right. I forgot the business department. Right. Uh, yeah, a lot. Everybody who doesn't know what they're doing, they always take business at university. It <laughs> <laughs> seems to be the case. With, well, maybe, maybe I'm insulting somebody, but you um, are. It's the most popular <laughs> major in the United States. It is. It used to be lawyer was like the number one social stratum up up thing, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, but, but 
But I, I think a lot of people take business and fail to achieve what they were hoping it would it would get, right? They they think that it is uh, everybody can be a manager or something, right? Everybody can be uh, the social manipulator uh, from the top and make be the person who's hiring and firing people rather than than the one gets hired and fired. But with so many people taking business, it, it's it's very. It, this story raises so many questions about our own societies, I think. And it's mm-hmm. really it's 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 not a mirror to us. That's the other thing, right? There's something about the way Jack Vance is upset was some was it in the uh maybe it's in the introduction to something, I'm not sure where. Oh, I know what it was. The Starship Sofa did the reading of this. Um uh two part audio book of the moon moth, and um, I think Tony Smith was saying how um, how Vance was obsessed with the Baroque or something like that, mm-hmm. and and in a you know he's obsessed in a way that Tolkien's obsessed with languages and and setting up uh, family trees for his characters. This guy's obsessed with sort of the ornate um, ornate social structures. Yeah, well, I, I think he is. I mean, have you? I mean, you haven't read. No, I'm, I'm I've sure, read like the Potters of Frisk is the only other one yeah, I think. I'm sure Brian's read uh, Planet of Adventure, the the Chai novels. Yeah, which the, which, uh, which are my to the one. Yeah, absolute favorite. I mean, I just reread them a couple years ago. Actually, I listened to them on audiobook, and mm-hmm. and I mean which, the 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 Chai novels. Basically, Adam Breath is a human astronaut who crash lands on this planet that's full of aliens it's also full of humans who over thousands of years have grown to look like been bred to look like the aliens that they're controlled and so there's all these cultures that he runs into of every possible description from from plains warriors who wear masks for various rituals not all the time like here to Baroque ancient decaying cities to aliens that hunt and eat humans. It's just like a tapestry of different cultures that he explores as Adam Reith figures out, okay, if these aliens know about humans, they must have got these humans in a distant past from Earth. Therefore, they're a threat to Earth. I got to get off and go warn Earth that these aliens are out here. And so the five books are basically his story about him trying to get off of Chai and having setback after setback until he figures out the world enough in order to do that. It's like he likes to unlock, I mean, you can see it here, where he's unlocking the puzzle of the culture in order to uh, gain a shock. Uh, Adam Reith unlocks the puzzle of the cultures on Chai to be able to get a spaceship in order to escape. That I'm going to spoil this a little bit, but you should read the novels. Um, so in one book, he decides, I need lots of money to get a spaceship. So... There's a place on the planet there you can get basically gems out of the ground and you can go and dig them up. But the this one particular race called the Deirdre will come and kill you and oh, take yeah. your stuff. So he thinks, I got a great idea. I will go into this area, but I won't go digging up the rocks. I'll go hunting the Deirdre who have already killed other people who have plenty of the rocks and get rich. It's brilliant. And, mm. and, and, and the Deirdre never considered someone to go hunting them. It's like. Pwned. 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 
<laughs> I, I mean, there are more setbacks that because the deer <clears throat> get to what they're doing and then they start hunting him in main force and, and Reeves nearly does lose his life on a number of occasions. But that's some of my favorite Jack Vance because it brings together all those, all these threads of what he likes to do and puts them into a, one delicious five volume package. Hmm. Yeah. So uh, what are the literary roots behind Vance? Because like, you know, I read a lot of people and I sort of I see where they're coming from. Um, he can't be making all of this up. I mean, I feel kind of like he's a little Borges, but not very, you know, he's a little Dunsanian, but not really. He didn't, read a, lot, he didn't read a lot of science fiction of his own. I his, mean, go, yeah. I, I think Brian wants to talk to this, So go ahead, Brian. No, I, I, you're, I, please keep going. You're, you're right. He, he didn't. Um, uh, go on, go on. I, I mean, he had he had some science fiction friends. Um, Paul Anderson, I believe, was a friend of his. Frank Herbert was. But mm. as far as I mean, he what he didn't grow up in the tradition of science fiction like like a lot of the science fiction writers of the of the time. So I'm not quite sure where he actually got some of his ideas. I think a lot of it is is his very diverse life experience and just his family's experiences his grandfather was in the california gold rush and he lived in california for a long while and studied all sorts of things so i i he he's very sui generis in a very unique and and interesting way that you just don't find anymore because you couldn't help but be exposed to science fiction in this day and age but back then I could believe that Vance just like came out of nowhere and started just started exuding stuff that only he writes. I mean, as I was saying earlier on, I mean, consider just how little extrapolative technology there is in Vance stories or especially in this particular story. We have a we have a blaster, we have a spaceship, we have a interstellar means of communication, and that's about all the science fictional elements you have in this entire story. Mm-hmm. And yet, and, and yet, I mean, it feels like fantasy. It it has that mode of fantasy, but it is definitely science fiction. Mm-hmm. It's it's it, it's really hard, and a lot of his stories are like that. Like, but I mean, sometimes it goes to absurdity. Like in the Demon Prince's novels, for example, which is a set Ooh. of five novels about a a guy who survives an attack on the planet by these five arch criminals, and he decides to make his life mission to go after each arch criminal and take him down. At one point, he's on a planet and he gets into a telephone booth. I mean, this is, this is, this is a high-technology universe with spaceships and everything. He gets in a telephone booth and makes a phone call. So Jack Vance didn't really like to think a lot about extrapolative technology, per se. I mean, that's not what he really interested in. So it's like... I mean, so, it's his, so his roots are definitely not in the Clarkian... Uh, sturgeon tradition it's like he just mm-hmm. came out of nowhere and it's like I'll, i like to sit place set stories in distant worlds and places and times and some are science fiction some are fantasy some are very borderline the dying earth is very he's borderline. off in his own orbit really i mean that's i think that's why i didn't encounter him very yeah. much because you know when you're reading a book and one book leads to another book in a certain sense you know like this is similar to that uh-huh. he's off he's off in his own corner doing his own thing that i don't see connected to um a lot of other stuff that's you know i have to yeah. pick a, a yeah. david d levine story and 
you know, a point towards a, a, a bit of Lovecraft, but Dunstan and Borges, right? It's it, he feels like he's way off, away from everyone else. The only I, thing, sorry, go for it. Yeah, I, I got lucky because when some of the earlier book, early books in the seventies that my brother gave me when I started reading science fiction in the in the eighties were the the Chai novels. It's like, oh wow, this is wonderful. And then mm-hmm. I couldn't find a lot of stuff. A lot of stuff was out of print for the longest time. So I had to give up Vance till start stuff started coming back in print in the nineties and I just started like, Okay, now I'll start reading Vance in main force and well, went ahead and did that and mm. and that now more recently there have been lots of lots of stuff reissued, especially in ebook. I mean now you have the Vance integral editions where basically where they've gone through and cleaned up errors and reissued some of the stories and it's like so I, I have not read every piece of Vance out there because he's the man wrote a lot. And, mm-hmm. But it's like, yeah, I, now I'm getting the urge to read some more Vance that is new to me all of a sudden. I wonder how, how funny how that works. Yeah. I want to um, I want to tell you guys I was listening to the latest In Our Time, you know, that BBC series. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And they just did a show on Moby Dick, audience requested. And there, uh, you know, Brian and I did two giant shows on Moby Dick and shoved them together, and <laughs> uh, and that's the first time I read it. It's a it's a book that I will probably have to reread again, which is something I don't normally do. Um, but I, one of those images that was stuck in my head, and and they, it's kind of pointed to in there in our time, you know, hour long discussion, um, is the the whiteness of the whale, right? What it means? Why is the whale white? Um, and then that struck me uh, is the the line about the pasteboard masks. So I'm going to read that. It's from chapter 26. <laughs> Let's read this. Oh, you've, yeah, you've got it practically memorized here. Hark ye, yet again, the literal, little lower layer, all visible objects, man, are but as pasteboard masks. But in each event, in the living act, the undoubted deed, there's, there's some unknown but still reasoning thing puts forth the moldings of its features from behind the unreasoning mask. If man will strike, strike through the mask. How can the prisoner reach outside except by thrusting through the wall? So this is, um, it, 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 uh, we read this, I was like, what does this mean? I, <clears throat> it's almost like Philip K. Dick here, right? It's like, what? what is he talking about? Here we've got, in this story, we've got literal masks, right? And and that makes me think of things like the, the Mask of the Red Death, right? Where people, uh, in a sort of festive atmosphere, uh, wander around not knowing who each other is. You know, Halloween, most people don't actually put on masks anymore. Um, they just put on costumes. But a mask is, it really does knock out who you think you're talking to. If you're in a society like that, um, things are quite different. Uh, you know, the Instagram filter is is a filter. It's not a complete, you know, face just face swap, right? It's it is a um, it is something else. But the idea that we wear a mask that blinds us to the world, um, and that we wear a mask that blinds other people to us, is literalized in this story in a way that um, I don't think I don't think Melville's talking about. But is nonetheless far more real in a certain sense. This is, I mean, this is a small debate in Canada. You know, like 
politicians, the the last government kind of shot them. One of the last things they did to shoot themselves in the foot was sort of make sort of pointed uh, pointing the direction that we're going to outlaw the hijab, you know, the uh, face covering some Muslim women wear. Um, why that? Why are they doing that? Well, because it plays to the base, right? And they think it's gonna, it's gonna get them a few votes, and okay, um, but we kind of condemn any society that makes people do that, right? And why is that? What would it be like to be in a world where everybody's? I mean, how would you even tell who's who? If they can change their mask, it's not like they're wearing a, a the same mask every day. This is a very weird world that he's built in this tiny story for such a weird world. Mm. It really is. It really is. So, so one, one more thing I want to bring up. Um, mm-hmm. you, I, I hope I hope everyone finds it obvious, or maybe the listeners find it obvious. What. Um, what form of popular entertainment is kind of being satirized here? What form of popular entertainment involves people singing, singing their words to the company mm. of music and often wearing masks and acting in a very dramatic high fashion? Mm. I didn't see that. Opera. <laughs> please yes. tell me. Yeah, please tell me more. Well, yeah. You know, that's that's uh, that is another blindness. I'm not great at music, so uh, and apparently. Uh, he was, uh, or at least very well, interesting. Uh, yeah, he he, he played he played jazz banjo and a whole bunch of other things. Yeah, Jack Vance was scary talented, folks. And mm-hmm. and at the end, he was still writing, even he had gone completely blind. So yeah, he was a badass. I, mm-hmm. can, can you tell I like Jack Vance? I'm sorry, I I, <laughs> I, I, got, I gushed about his work because I really really liked it because I read it early and, and imprinted on me. But yeah, I mean this is an operatic world. People act. High strung, dramatic. There's strong passions. They're ind- individuals can depend. Mm-hmm. They're wearing masks. They're, there's music and accompaniment. I mean, Sirenese is basically twenty four seven opera. Mm. Yeah, you put it which that way. Which is why, way. like, yeah, which is why when I started it, I almost pulled out of this podcast because I was like, wow. oh god, I can't even stand this. Like, I started listening Aww. to the like, I hate musicals and mm. performance people, and I was just like, I don't think I can listen to this story. It's it's not going to be me. But actually, the for anyone who is afraid of listening to like stuff like that, that especially that um the audio drama, I think it's the first one I've ever actually enjoyed. Like it it totally oh, turned good. around on me. Good. But um. Yeah, the idea of listening to people sing words in an audiobook was like, oh, I can't do this. <laughs> well, yeah, the the audiobook doesn't, you know, it says that he sang or whatever, but he doesn't. The narrator doesn't generally sing it, right? No, not in the audiobook. In the drama, yeah. in the audio drama, I, like the very first few minutes, I was like, oh no, I can't do yeah. this. <laughs> An animal? How dare you, sir? <laughs> <laughs> but it was very good. It, it totally, yeah, I got into it. Yeah, yeah. No, well, this is. Um, go for it, Brian. No, there's just somebody. I, I'm I'm nodding here, which is useless on podcast. Uh, <laughs> I mean, there, there's so many great points here. One is you know, the idea of um, masks and uh, and the whole social environment as a metaphor for getting used to a new society. I mean, you think, you think about how the um, our hero is having a hard time with the musical instruments at the beginning, and how they become joyless for him. You think it's a nice metaphor for learning a foreign language. Mm. Uh, and how he makes mistakes, and you think about going to a different country or talking with someone uh, who speaks a different language and mangling it. And that was, I mean, you don't 
you're not going to get killed usually. Um, but the, uh, but that sense of fear is, I, I thought that was pretty good. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's also, it's a mystery novel. I mean, I, I, I heard this last year or so, and I was really struck by how this is a, a classic, uh, mystery novel. You know, you have the, um, Almost a Western, in fact. You know, when you have the uh, the bad guy that has to be tracked down, identified, it's a big yeah. puzzle. Uh, and in fact, I I'm not that big a mystery reader, but I couldn't help but think about uh, John D. McDonald, who has a, a, a private detective. Book. Yeah, yeah, but that I think the first uh, one of his is after this. Um, but it's it's definitely a mystery. Um, Tony C. Smith uh, interviewed Vance once. Which was great because you could just hear Tony like grinning like a fiend. You're like, I've got Jack Vance here. Um, but one of the things that Vance, he asked what was hard about writing, and Vance said it was plotting. Plotting was the hard thing. Mm. And you can almost see him straining to make this plot work. You know, mm-hmm. and, uh, but it works so well in this. Um, yeah. You know, that that's the thing is I was thinking about, you know, re-listening to it. I was thinking, like, how is this constructed? What, you know, one, one of the things I uh, I do with students is I, I try and help them gather the, stool, the, the tools up that they can have access to so that they can do uh, uh, do their homework the way I did it, which is basically bluff your way through. Right. You, so that you have the, the skill set that you can be thrown some stupid thing that you need to deal with and then bluff your way through, you know, in a, because you've done it so many times before you've got this, this, you know, whether the basketball goes left or right, you can, you can play it either way. Right. Um, and so one of the things I say is, you know, what, what is the, what is the author thinking behind this, this, what are they trying to do? Are they trying to teach you something? Are they trying to show you a certain feeling? Right. And, so I like to start with Edgar Allan Poe, and basically every one of his stories is pretty much exactly the same. Um, there's a beautiful woman. She's dead. And isn't it wonderful to think about beautiful dead women? And that's basically <laughs> all he's thinking oh about, God. right? That's his whole thing. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. when thinking about this one, I was thinking, like, is it? Is it? The, I don't think it's a mystery, that is the thing he was trying to put us in. I think that the mystery is the plot and that the world and the feelings that he's associating, what would it be like if you had a world where nobody has any identity except what they claim as their identity? What would it be like to have a world where the only way of paying for anything is by being famous enough that you can just walk into somebody's house and take it um and then that's the idea and there is no you know the the fact that there's a murder mystery i mean i think he managed to shoehorn it in here very nicely but i didn't spend my time thinking about that part i was thinking about i think what he wanted me to think about which is wow look at this world and uh, even you know asking people what they who've read this story they it's the one with the masks right Mm -hmm. that's what they know about it the one with the masks. Yeah, I guess that feeling he's trying to give you as well, like, um, I was just thinking about it now, is it kind of reminds me, like, I used to be, like, so shy and not mm. be able to, like, deal with social, social situations very well. And it kind of reminds me of that, like, how he's going up to people and not really understanding, like, how he's offending people or saying the wrong thing or doing the wrong thing. Like, I think if you're, like... Yeah, in any way alien or a little bit introverted or not like totally mm-hmm. tied into this the cultures like 
social mannerisms. Like it's basically like playing with the fear of that, of just like yeah. bumbling into situations and pissing people off. You got it. Did you enjoy the plot, um, Brian? I don't know if you. Um, oh, I did. I did. Yeah. I was trying to. I mean, I, I really like the. Uh, I mean, it's a short story, really. Um, and he managed to unfold an awful lot. Um, mm-hmm. so you, you've got the um, uh, fear of bureaucracy, which is an obsession of American science fiction. Um, in the beginning, remember, oh, I got the letter too late. Why can't these Syrians move faster? Um, mm-hmm. And then his boss misunderstands him and threatens his job. Um, I mean, and then at the end, he has, you know, he's totally screwed up. He's made all these terrible mistakes. And then he whips them. It gets captured and uh, totally the mercy of the killer and manages to just flip it all around, turn that into an advantage. It's a I mean, judo I, flip. Yeah. Mm. It's, it's, it's really impressive. Um, so I, I really enjoyed that. He has, um, Vance always has this kind of um, sardonic sense of humor. Mm hmm. And it shows up in his first book, which is the one I always recommend people read, actually, uh, which is Dying Earth, which he wrote when he was, like, 20. Um, yeah, I want to read that. Yeah, we should do that. In the South Pacific, when he was um, in World War II, um, and he apparently, the story is he would just look up in the night sky and think, you know, about civilizations rising and falling, um, and then uh-huh. worked in magic. And um, it's it's got a... It's, it has those wonderful names, including uh, Paul and probably remember Shun the Unavoidable. Oh God, I loved yeah, <laughs> I loved Shun. One, one of the greatest villains of all science fiction. Yeah, e- e- yeah, even the pocket dimension that you can hide in can't save you for ch- from Shun. That's right. That's right. Yeah, pocket, I mean, it's um, it's 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 a subgenre that I'm I'm very fond of, uh, where you have the far future of the human race on earth and uh the earth has become you know unrecognizable in many ways I mean, you think about um gene wolf did this in the very great book of the new sun uh brian aldis did this in the hot house uh there's a wonderful japanese um film uh nausicaa um and uh clark ashton smith wrote stories in this vein mm-hmm. yeah this was a kind of clark ashton smithy too now that i think about it. it it does and you and again smith is also someone with that dark sardonic sense of humor mm-hmm and a great love of language. But for, for Vance, he saves language for names. Um, and I, I'd recommend this. I'd, I'd also recommend his uh, Hugo winning short stories. Paul, what, it was The Last Castle and uh, what was the other one? The Dragon. Drag- yeah, the, yeah, The Dragon Masters. Yeah, and I, I really recommend those. Those are both really strange and, uh, and again, have really good plots. Uh, really compelling. Yeah, and a really <laughs> interesting anthropological setup between the two cultures and the Dragon Masters. How, how they mirror each other. Yeah, that's really, really good stuff. Yeah. Yeah, I do want to read more of them because I feel like, like you say, like the plot is a little bit shoehorned in this one maybe, but mm. I, it didn't make me want less of it. It made me want more of yeah. it. Like I, I wished it was a novel and that I could really get into these characters and stay there longer. Yeah. I mean, it feels like a novel. I it, I was just looking to see how long it is. It, I mean, it runs just, just over an hour, right? But um, it's not a novelette. It's not a novella. It's classified as a short story, mm-hmm. um, and that it, the fact that so much is in it, um, and it's also got a plot too. Wow! Yeah, <laughs> that's pretty. I'm impressed. I think um, we need to put some Vance on our more Vance on our schedule. Jesse. I agree. Yeah. I agree. We gotta figure that what that out is and put it on there. There is Maybe a. 
Oh, go for it. Yeah. I was going to say, just, just thinking about the orbits that, that writers move in, I haven't mm-hmm. really studied Vance's uh, influence networks. I would, I'd like to do that. I'd probably want to ask um, uh, who would be good at this. Um, now, there are a few scholars I'd like to ask about it, but there, there are two two things besides the anthropological science fiction. Mm-hmm. Uh, one is the focus on language, um, and and that's that does show up. I mean, Eric Rabkin says this is the one of the key aspects of science fiction, is transformed language. Mm-hmm. does a little bit of that. But he's also interested in language itself, and, and there are stories that, that do that. And the second is the, the classic overlap, I, I think really uh, appreciated, between science fiction and mysteries. I mean, you get this in mm-hmm. uh, Pope, who more or less invents um, you know, the, science, the mystery and the science fiction short stories. Uh, and you see a lot of American writers in the 20th century who move back and forth between the two genres. Asimov, for one. Asimov, yeah, really good example. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and it's, it's interesting to see that with, uh, with Vance. So that might be, that might be one of those connections mm-hmm. that we have to, you know, we have to think about uh, a bit more. It, it, it is. Um, the mystery genre is a total twin of science fiction and not a twin of fantasy, right? It, it's a twin of science fiction in that we do this job. We engage with the, with the reality in a way that, is different than we do with fantasy. Fantasy is, you know, they call it escape. I, I guess it's, it's something like that, but it doesn't engage those gears of working it out, right? That, that really good science fiction does. And the, the, yeah, it goes right back to the beginning of our conversation. This is the anthropology section of the, of the library, right? Mm-hmm. It's about the soft sciences. And I, I actually, um, I think that the soft sciences are much more interesting in science fiction than the hard sciences because there's just so much more to do. And there's almost nothing to do in, in the hard sciences. And then when we focus on, you know, on more hard science fiction, I mean, Larry Niven just did too much of it already for us. And, you know, there's a couple other folks here and there, but really there's nothing more to say at the, at the moment. We, we can't, we haven't got a great new awesome hard science thing going on so it's it's if it's not bio what else you got soft yeah science. Science. yeah if it's not biotech which is yeah that's, that's and even that, thinking yeah i mean uh, we got epigenetics and we got genetics and we got you know whatever cloning memory you know uh even like the thing is is we don't think of philip k dick as kind of a soft science Fiction guy, he's more philosophical science fiction, if that's even a thing. He's his own genre, really. But the soft science is Mac Reynolds novels. I love, even though he's not the greatest writer, I love his stuff because it's all about ideas. He said, there's, he's got one that is, um, okay, we've, we're in a post-scarcity society. Now the problem is everybody has tons of education and there's no jobs because everything's automated, right? Wow, that sounds like a great problem to have. Let's spend a novel figuring what that out means, right? You know, that's happening next week. <laughs> yeah, I mean, in a certain sense, uh, if you think about uh, American society, is not perfect. Um, is it maybe in very bad shape? But one thing that seems to be going on is nobody's starving to death at this moment. Um, at least not in the majority, right? Even the poorest of the folks can get cheap food and isn't that say something very different 
then it does, you know, there are other places in the world where that's not the case. But in a very rich society with a lot of social stratification, and if you're not wearing the right suit, uh, somebody pointed that out to me. Um, it's like, I don't notice these things. I was watching, like, saying, look at Bill Maher in his, his uh, French cuffs. I was like, oh, yeah, his, his collar and his cuffs are incredibly strange. Why was, why are they like that? Oh, yes, it's because it's a $5,000 suit or whatever, right? And I said, well, what difference does that make? Well, it makes a difference if you, if you know what it is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Otherwise, they look, like, they look like clowns in a certain sense if they're not in that context. Uh, nobody I know would wear anything like that, you know. Right. Um, and so it, there is, uh, and the hair and makeup departments, right? Those are big deals, right? That basically a lot of people's job is just to make you look a certain way for your formal, your formal thing. So uh, maybe that's what all those slaves on uh, Cyrene are doing is they're just mask, you know, fitting the masks and polishing the instruments. <laughs> It's not all sex. Come on, got a lot of nails. Masks, thick, yeah, makeup artists. Yeah, makeup. Yeah, just uh, just polishing all those masks, getting all the musical instruments tuned up. We, I think we got a show here, guys. Um, yeah, yes. I am pleased to have podcasted with you. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> oh. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com. Ah, you are so beautiful. You hide beneath your equinoctial attitude mask. But you can't fool me. I notice those soft, exposed shoulders from the other side of the square. Who are you who wears a tavern brothel mask and forces his drunken attentions on me? I am a highest rock. I am your social fetter. And I am Serpenko, the consular representative to this planet from... An off-worlder! A brief but adequate description. And now that the introductions are over, I don't need to sing, and I don't need this damn instrument. Come here. Hmm. Perfume. So soft. Animal! No one will see us. Come back to my house. Animal! Or we can just get acquainted behind that building. Let's go! Who is this foolish tavern bravo that has the audacity to molest this maiden? mask maker! I am the daughter of a first-level public magistrate, and this drunkard is an outworlder! Oh, come on. This is a sirenese celebration, isn't it? I was your just... Your assault on this maiden is not your crime, outworlder. You have brazenly chosen to ignore the struck level of this maiden's mask. She wears an equinoctial attitude. That is unforgivable. Equinoctial attitude? I didn't know her mask was... You, Bright Skybird, and you, Sir Sand Tiger, hold on this animal, this outworlder. 
bloody go. I didn't know. I shall be hitting with my scimitar on the spot. What? Wait, wait, I... Wait, hold on. You can't do this. I'm consular representative to Cyrene. And now you sing to me without an instrument as if you were a slave addressing an equal. Enough. No, no. Sir Willibus, let's leave quickly. If they discover we're outworlders... No need. We know how to behave, and we mind our own business. Just act naturally, Rover. Just act naturally. Poor devil. Now we'll have to find another consular representative. Considering the mortality rate, they should just ship them down here by the dozen. It's these damn Sirenese customs. Always trips them up. I wonder what fool would actually accept this position. <laughs> Poor devil. Poor fool. We have arrived at the Sirenese spaceport. Please stand back from the accessway, sir. Oh, sorry, sorry. You are Edward Thistle, sir, the new consular representative to Cyrene? Yes, I am, Stuart. Uh, a note from Esteban Ralver, the local agent for Spaceways. He will be meeting you outside. He wishes to inform you that you will recognize him by his mask. It will be of dull green scales and blue lacquered wood. I see. He says to look for the black quills protruding at the cheeks. Black quills, uh-huh. And under his chin will be hung a black and white checked pom-pom. <laughs> that doesn't sound too hard to... Oh, I see, I see him right there. Rover? Esteban Rover? It's me, Edward Thistle. How are you? I'm glad to be on Cyrene. Your mask. I... Where is your mask? Well, uh, uh, this? I, I wasn't sure. Put it on, Thistle. I must turn away until you put it on. <laughs> I hope Are I you must. Uh, I'm sorry, Sarah Rover. If I, yeah, yes, yes, I have it on. You can, you can turn around. You can't wear that mask. In fact, how? Where did you get it, Sir Thistle? It's copied from a mask owned by the Polypolis Museum. I, I'm sure it's authentic. If that's what you're. Oh asking. yes, it's authentic enough. It's a variant of the type known as the Sea Dragon Conqueror. It's worn on ceremonial occasions by persons of enormous prestige. Princes, heroes, master craftsmen, great musicians. Uh, I wasn't aware. It's something you'll learn in due course. Notice my mask. Today I'm wearing a tarnbird. Persons of minimal prestige, such as you, I, or any other outworlder, wear this sort of thing. This crowd is getting rather ugly. Quickly follow me. We're going across the field to my office in that concrete blockhouse. That's odd. I, I assumed that a person on Cyrene wore whatever mask he liked. Certainly wear any mask you like, if you can make it stick. This tarn bird, for instance. I wear it to indicate that I presume nothing. I make no claims to wisdom, ferocity, versatility, musicianship, truculence, or any of a dozen other Cyrenese virtues. For the sake of argument, what would happen if I walked through the streets of Zandar in this sea dragon conqueror mask? <laughs> if you walked through... First of all, there are no streets in Zandar. It's like Venice on Old Earth. If you walked along the docks of Zandar in any mask, you'd be killed within the hour. I didn't... That's what happened to Benko, your predecessor. He didn't know how to act. None of us outworlders knows how to act. In Fan, we're tolerated so long as we keep our place. But you couldn't even walk around Fan in that regalia you're sporting now. 
Somebody wearing a, a, a fire snake or a, a thunder goblin. Masks? Yes, somebody wearing those types of masks would step up to you. He'd play his crowdatch. And if you failed to challenge his audacity with a passage on the Skaranyi, a devilish instrument, he'd play his heimekin, the instrument we use with the slaves. That's the ultimate expression of contempt. Or he might ring his dueling gong and attack you then and there. I had no idea that people here were so quick-tempered. You'll soon find out. And here we are. Ah. Why the security? The concrete? The steel? Protection against the savages. They come down from the mountains at night, steal what's available, kill anyone they find ashore. Excuse me a moment. Here, use this moon moth. It won't get you in trouble. This isn't very attractive. It's all mousy-covered fur. Look at this. What is this poof of hair around the mouth? Antenna, lace flaps. Look at the eyes. What are these red folds underneath the eyes? I'll look really gloomy and really silly. Huh. Who'd think a mask like this signified any degree of prestige? It doesn't. Well, I can't wear it then, can I? After all, I'm consular representative. I represent the home planets, a hundred billion people. If the home planets want their representative to wear a sea dragon conqueror mask, they'd better send out a sea dragon conqueror type of man. I see. Well, if I have to... Wait until I turn my head, Seth Thistle. Ah, there you are. That moon moth is much better on you. I suppose I can... Find something just a bit more suitable in one of the shops. I'm told a person simply goes in and takes what he needs, correct? That mask, temporarily at least, is perfectly suitable. And it's rather important not to take anything from the shops until you know the struck value of the article you want. The owner loses prestige if a person of low struck makes free with his best work. Oh, look, Rolver, none of this was explained to me. I knew about the masks, of course, and the, quote, painstaking integrity of the craftsman, but this insistence on prestige, struck, or whatever the damn word no is... No matter. After a year or two, you'll begin to learn your way around. I suppose you speak the language. Of course I do, certainly. And what instruments do you play? Well, I was given to understand that any small instrument was adequate, or that I could simply sing. <laughs> Only slaves sing without accompaniment. You'd better learn the basic six instruments first. They should provide at least a rudimentary means of communication. You're joking. <laughs> Not at all. Now, let's see. You'll also need a houseboat. You'll need a portable computoid to guide you, and then you want some slaves. Well, my, and... my head's spinning. Look, Sir Thistle, at the moment there are only four outworlders in Fan, counting yourself. I'll take you to see Cornelie Wellibus. He's our commercial factor, lived in Fan for 15 years, acquired enough struck to wear a south wind with authority. South wind? It's a mask, blue disc inlaid with cabochons of lapis lazuli, shimmering snakeskin around it. Sounds impressive. More importantly, I think he's got an old houseboat he might let you use. That's right. The houseboat and all those various musical instruments. 
I'll also throw in a pair of slaves. Uh, Sir Wellibus, I I can't accept... Sir Wellibus is making you a gift, Sir Thistle. Yes, Sir Wellibus, but but I have to arrange for some sort of payment. My dear fellow, this is Cyrene. Such trifles cost nothing. But but a a houseboat, Sir Wellibus? Hand me my kiv. Thank you. I'll be frank, Sir Thistle. The boat is old and a trifle shabby. I can't afford to use it, my strach. My status would suffer. Strach as yet need not concern you. You require merely shelter, comfort, and safety from the nightmen. Nightmen? The cannibals who roam the shore after dark. Oh, yes. Sarah Olver mentioned them. Horrible things. Yes, horrible. We won't discuss them. Now, as to slaves, Rex and Toby should serve you well. Hand me my Heimerkin, Thistle, that instrument. Rex! Toby! We are of service, Master! Sarah Olver, these are slaves? Yes, and notice they wear loose masks of black cloth. You will now be of loyal service to your new master, Sir Thistle, on pain of return to your native islands. With our very lives, we pledge absolute servitude to our new master. There you are, Sir Thistle. I, I, uh, Toby, Rex, go to the houseboat, clean it well, bring aboard food. Um, what are they looking at, Sir Willibus? Uh, allow me, Sir Thistle. Go to the houseboat, clean it well, bring aboard food. Yes, master, we We bow and depart. These instruments, Sir Willibus. I haven't the slightest idea how to go about learning these things. Sir Rolver, what about Kershaw? Could he be persuaded to give Sir Thistle some basic instruction? Hmm, Kershaw might undertake the job, and then Thistle can carry on with a computoid. Excellent. Who, who, who's Kershaw? The third of our little group of expatriates, my dear Sir Thistle. Matthew Kershaw is an anthropologist. You've read Zandar the Splendid, Rituals of Cyrene, The Faceless Folk? I didn't think so. A pity. All excellent works. Kershaw is high in prestige and I believe visits Zandar from time to time. Wears a cave owl, sometimes a star wanderer, or even a wise arbiter. He's taken to an equatorial serpent, the variant with the gilt tusks. Indeed. Well... I must say he's earned it. Uh, Please hand me that Zachinko there, Thistle. Thank you. Fine fellow, that Kershaw. Matthew Kershaw. A good chap indeed. Now breathe in. Now breathe out. Now breathe in. And now... Breathe out. You are calm. You are centered. Your lungs are purified by the mountaintop air. Pick up the gamma part and play me a compound rhythm. No, not the ganja, the gamma part. Hmm. This? No, that's the Heimerkin. I thought that was the Heimerkin. That's the Zachinko. And that's the Kiv, and that's the Straypan. Right? That's the Kiv, and that's the Strapon. Sir Rolver and Sir Wellibus were right. You're a very 
patient teacher, Sarah Kershaw. I'm sorry, but I'm so confused. <laughs> and you wanted to practice on the double camethyl and the crowdot. I guess my lack of preparation. It's all right, Sir Thistle. I mean, I didn't realize what the quarter tone tuning is about. 24 tonalities multiplied by five modes. You're talking about what, 120 separate scales? Sir Thistle. All played with implied rhythms, suppressed rhythms, extended intonation. Stop. Take a deep breath. And out. You're calm, you're centered, your lungs are purified by the mountaintop air. <sighs> I have to confess, Sir Thistle, that I find Sirenese music a fascinating study. Yes, and there certainly is plenty of it to be fascinated with. Well, you have nothing but time. I'll give you my extra computoid, the one I used when I got here. It will guide you through Sirenese music and customs. Once you start mastering them, you'll fall into the easy rhythm of Cyrene. So don't forget to stop and enjoy the blue sea at noon. Or enjoy the night sky with the 29 stars of cluster SI1-715. It is quite haunting. Quite beautiful. And? Yes? Keep practicing. Now breathe in. Now breathe out. Now breathe in. Now breathe out. A ganja is a... A ganja. A ganja. A ganja is a zither-like instrument not much larger than a human hand. Correct answer. Pick up the ganja and play the leftmost Sirenese scale. Leftmost, leftmost... Zachinko is a miniature bagpipe, the sack squeezed between thumb and palm, the four fingers controlling the stops along four tubes. Incorrect answer. Damn. A zachinko is a small sound box studded with keys, played with the right hand. Pressure on the keys force air through reeds in the keys themselves, producing a concertina-like tone. Right, right. A zachinko is a small sound box studded... With Pick keys, up the Zachinko with... and run off a dozen quick scales. Wait, hold on. This is too fast. Where's the... Where's the... No. No, no. Right hand. Right hand on the keys. One. Two. A Heimerkin Wait, a... I'm not through with the Zachinko. Incorrect answer. The Heimerkin is a cracking, slapping, flattering device Enough. Of... Computoid instructional mode pause. Instructional mode paused. Trills, arpeggios, slurs, click stops, nasalizations, wolf tones. I can't learn all this. I'm going to fling these stupid instruments into the Titanic. Damn. I have to communicate with the Sirenese, and I still don't know is a chinko from a ganja from a damn gamma part. Communication from slave quarters. Connection mode to slave quarters. Rear deck connection mode to slave quarters. Toby, what is it? Toby, what's your message? Toby? Computoid, what's wrong with this connection? Connection mode to slave quarters tests positive. You must sing your message accompanied by the Heimerkin. Heimerkin? Oh, that's right. Incorrect response. The Heimerkin is a clacking, slapping, I know, of wood device. and stone used exclusively with the slaves. Got it right here. Toby... What do you want? Oh. 
I am honored by your communication, Sir Thistle. It pleases me to report that a messenger awaits you on the dock. Well then, well then, have Rex lower the ladder so I can get to the dock. Master, the ladder has been lowered since we moored the houseboat in Fan. Hmm. Yes, yes, so it has. Computoid into portable mode. Slave quarter disconnect. Portable mode assumed. Instructional sidebar. The basic belt harness contains the six essential instruments. Heimerken, Ganja, Zuchinko, Kid, Strapan, Gamma Pride. So? Do not forget to take it with you. You sound like my mother programmed you. Wait till I get down that. I, I can't play till. The outworlder in the moonwalk map before me possibly expresses the identity of Sir Edward Thistle. A conversation with a slave must be accompanied. I know. By... I know. I am Sir Thistle. I have been honored by a trust. Uh, what is the nature of this trust? I carry a message cartridge, Sir Thistle. I need to. Let me just move this Heimerkin. Um, put the message cartridge in the computoid. As it pleases, Sir Thistle. Received message text. Emergency communication. Rush. Confidential. Invoice ID. Edward Thistle, consular representative of the home planets on Cyrene. Identification affirmative. Absolutely urgent. The following orders be executed. Aboard Canacruciero, destination Fan. Date of arrival January 10 UT. Is notorious assassin Hexel A. Mark. Message pause. Message paused. Consult your conversion calendar, slave. When is January 10 Universal Time? It is the 40th day in the season of bitter nectar, Sir Thistle. If it pleases you, January 10th is today. Today. Message continued. Message continued. Meet commanding craft with adequate authority. Effect detention and incarceration of this man. What is all this about? I'm just a consular representative. How do these instructions must be successfully implemented? Failure is unacceptable. Signed by Castle Cormartin, Chief Executive of the Interworld Policies Board. Slave, what vessel is that approaching over there at the landing field? As it pleases the gentleman in the moon moth master Thistle, that is the lighter returning from contact with the Cana Cruciero. Well, well, that's a mile and a half. Should take a half hour for them to disembark and. Addendum to message text. Attention. Axel Engmark is superlatively dangerous. Kill him without hesitation at any show of resistance. End of received message text. This is getting. I need to get to the spaceport to see Esteban Rolver, the director, to get a platoon of slaves. I need air transport. I am sorry to relate, Sir Thistle, that there are no air cars on Cyrene. Perhaps, if it pleases you, Sir Thistle. 
you may inquire of the Honorable Hostler at the Stone and Iron Building across the Esplanade. See, he stands by those large sirenies, lizards, and... With a pearl and silver mask? Excellent. Casual personal encounter. Instrument of choice is... I know. The kid. Damn, that's the conjure. Oh, 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 I'm sorry. I, I, I meant to play the kiv. And I, I'm new here. You understand? And, oh, gee. Sarah Hostler, I have immediate need of a swift mount. Allow me to select from your herd. Sarah Hostler? It is obvious to me that you are an outwelder. And so, Sam Moonmoth, you doubtless know nothing of the stimic I play. Sam Moonmoth, I fear that my steeds are unsuitable to a person of your distinction. By no means. They all seem adequate. I am in great haste, and I will gladly accept any of the group. Samoon, the steeds are ill and dirty. I am flattered that you consider them adequate to your use. I cannot accept the merit that you offer me, and as I am sure you now fail to recognize the tinkle of my pronunch, I also fail to recognize the supposed companion and co-craftsman who accosts me so familiarly playing his ganja. You overestimate your strach, outworlder. I... Let me just unhook my zachinko. And now I must get on with tending my animal, Sam Moonmoth. Oh, and please do not infer any disrespect from my accompaniment on the Heimerkin. One uses it when addressing slaves, you know. I'm sure I'm not underestimating your strach. Good day. But, but I have to get to the spaceport, and... Master Moonmoth, it is my honor to serve you. Slave, is it that you have encountered any persons on this road to Fan? Master Moonmoth, it is since I have walked from the landing field that I have passed two women wearing the red bird and the green bird, a boy child wearing an auk islander, and a man masked as a forest goblin who is close behind me. A goblin? A forest goblin? Yes, that is so. Master Moonmoth, with all fear and respect, I must hurry with messages to deliver to my master in fan. That is all, slave. You may resume your labors. I am pleased to serve you, Master Moonmoth. 
could that be? There he is. There he is. You, Forest Goblin, halt. Stand where you are. I address you in the language of the home planet. Angmark, you are under arrest. Stand aside, outworlder scum. What? Where are you going? Don't move. I block your way. Wait a... Forest Goblin, you travel the road from the spaceport and... Where I travel and what I see are the concerns solely of myself. Move aside or I'll walk upon your face. Sir Rolver, your door was open. Are you... Sir Rolver, you startled me. I I didn't see you in the dark. Can you tell me who came down the road from the Canacruciero? Why do you ask? You're responsible for all relays of spacegrams, aren't you? You've seen the one I received from Castle Cromartin. Oh, yes, of course. It was delivered only half an hour ago. I rushed out as fast as I could. Angmark must have come right by here. Yes, I'm sure he did. What? Why didn't you hold him up? Delay him in some way? I had neither the authority, the inclination, nor the capability to stop him. I see. On the way, I passed a man in a rather ghastly mask. Saucer eyes, red waddles... A forest goblin. Angmark probably brought the mask with him. But he played the hand bugle so well, like a native of Cyrene. How could Angmark... He's well acquainted with Cyrene. He spent five years here in Fan. Crumb Martin made no mention of it in the space, Graham. It's common knowledge. I suppose you also aren't aware that Angmark was commercial representative before Wellibus took over. He and Wellibus knew each other? <laughs> Naturally. But don't suspect poor Wellibus of anything more than juggling his accounts. <laughs> I assure you, he's no consort of assassins. <laughs> Do you have a, a weapon I might borrow? You came out here to take Angmark yourself? You impress me. I took you for somebody who... Um... Thank you. I guess. Look, I have no choice. When Crow Martin gives orders, he expects results. In any event, I know I can depend on you and your slaves. Oh, to... no, 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 no. Don't count on me for help. I wear the Tarnbird. I make no pretensions of valor. But I can lend you a power pistol. Well, anything is better than nothing, I suppose. Here. I haven't used it recently, so I can't guarantee its charge. Thank you, Sir Rover. What will you do now? Try to find Angmark in Fan. Or might he head for Zundar? Mm, Angmark might be able to survive in Zundar, but he'd want to brush up on his musicianship. I imagine he'll stay in Fan a few days. But how can I find him? Where should I look? That I can't say. Thank you, Sarah Rover. I'll take the road to Fan. Sir Thistle, Angmark is a very dangerous man. You might be safer not finding him.
my humble apologies for almost walking into you, Sir Forest Goblin. I didn't see you. Your mask blended in with the shadows. And now I must bring this bag of vegetables to my shop and... <laughs> Reclaim your money belt. Would you like to exchange masks? I would. There. I am now, for the moment, a provisionous greenward. And you? Well, it really doesn't matter what you are anymore, does it? Oh, and uh, thank you for sharing your vegetables with a visitor to your lovely planet. of Sir Wellabus. It pleases me to answer your inquiry in the affirmative, Sir Moonmoth. Beyond that black carved door is the place of business of my master, Cornelie Wellbus, commercial factor, importer, and exporter. Then that's your master sitting up there on the veranda? I don't recognize him. Yes, Master Moonmoth, it is he that you behold, wearing a modest variation of the Waldemar mask. Ah, I see. I think... Um, good morning, Sir Wellabus. Good morning. The Crowdatch, Sir Wellabus? To your friend and fellow outworlder? Uh, may I ask how long you've been sitting here on your porch? Hmm. The Crabaron, more friendly. I've been here 15 or 20 minutes. Why do you ask? I just wonder if you noticed a forest goblin pass by. He went on down the esplanade. Turn into that first mask shop, I believe. Of course. That would be his first move. I'll never find him once he changes masks. Oh? Who is this forest goblin? I don't see any reason not to tell you, Sir Willibus. He's a notorious criminal. Haxo Angmark. Haxo Angmark? You're... You sure he's here? Reasonably sure. Oh, this is bad news. Bad news indeed. He's an unscrupulous scoundrel. I understand you knew him well. As well as anyone. As well as anyone. He held the post I now occupy. I came out as an inspector and found that he was embezzling 4,000 UMIs a month. I'm sure he feels no great gratitude toward me. I hope you catch him. He went into the mask shop, you said? Thank you, Sir Wellibus, for... Sir Wellibus? Thank you for nothing.
Please accept the compliments of an outworlder on your window display, Sarah Maskmaker. Yes. Imagine you have a hundred miniature masks, some carved from rare woods and minerals, dressed with emerald flakes, spiderweb silk, wasp wings, petrified fish scales, and many things I could not identify. Even your mask, Sarah Mask Maker, it is a universal expert mask. I am told it is fabricated from over 2,000 bits of articulated wood, is it not? So, um, a stranger is an interesting person to deal with. His habits are unfamiliar. He excites curiosity. Not 20 minutes ago, a stranger entered this fascinating shop to exchange his drab forest goblin for one of the remarkable and adventurous creations assembled on the premises. I... Ah, you play that instrument, whatever it is, very... I mean, um... To an outworlder on a foreign planet, the voice of one from his home is like water to a wilting plant. A person who could unite two such persons might find satisfaction in such an act of mercy. An artist values his moments of concentration. He does not care to spend time exchanging banalities with persons of at best average prestige. Oh, that is an interesting observation. Into the shop comes a person who evidently has picked up for the first time an instrument of unparalleled complication. For the execution of his music is open to criticism. He sings of homesickness and longing for the sight of others like himself. He dissembles his enormous straw behind a moon moth. But he plays the straw hands to a master craftsman and sings in a voice of contemptuous raillery. The refined and creative artist ignores the provocation. He plays a polite instrument, remains non-committal, and trusts that the stranger will tire of his sport and depart. I, I, I didn't mean to... The noble mask maker completely misunderstands me and my... The stranger now sees fit to ridicule the artist's comprehension. To protect myself from the heat, I wander into a small and unpretentious mask shop. The artisan, though still distracted by the novelty of his tools, gives promise of development. He works zealously to perfect his skills so much so that he refuses to converse with strangers no matter what their need. Oh, there's no need to turn off your lathe. Where are you going? I, I didn't mean to... Sir, Sir Mask Maker, I didn't mean to... Behold, outworlder, I wear a mask of gold and iron With wild flames licking up from the scalp In one hand I play the scaranyi, in the other I hold a scimitar 
Even the most accomplished artist can augment his strach by killing sea monsters, nightmen, and persistent idlers. For me, such an occasion is at hand. The artist delays his attack exactly ten seconds because the offender wears a moon moth. Sir Maskmaker, did a forest goblin enter the shop? Did he depart with a new mask? Five seconds have left. Haxo Agmark walks at liberty and fan. Help me. Two seconds remain. <gasps> Sir Moonmoth, I'm glad to see you. Who are? Oh yes, a forest owl. It's you, Sir Kershaw. Good morning. In the shop, choosing a mask or two. And how are the musical studies coming? Have you mastered the C sharp plus scale on the gamma part? As I recall, you were finding those inverse intervals puzzling. I've worked on them. However, since I'll probably be recalled to Polypolis, it may all be time wasted. What's this? You've heard of Haxo Angmark? He's on the loose. I failed to stop him. Well, yes, I recall Angmark. Not a gracious personality, but an excellent musician with quick fingers and a real talent for new instruments. What are your plans, Sir Thistle? Plans? They're non-existent. I haven't any idea what masks he'll be wearing, and if I don't know what he looks like, how can I find him? Hmm. In the old days, he favored the exogambian cycle, and I believe he used an entire set of nether denizens. Now, of course, his tastes may have changed. Exactly. He might be right in front of me, and I'd never know it. I just asked for information in this mask maker shop. He's no help. No one will tell me anything. I doubt if anybody in Cyrene cares that a murderer is walking their docks. Quite correct, Sir Thistle. Cyrene's standards are different from ours. They have no sense of responsibility. I doubt if they throw a rope to a drowning man. It's true that they dislike interference. They emphasize individual responsibility and self-sufficiency, which is all very interesting. But I'm still in the dark about Angmark. And、um, should you locate Angmark, what will you do then? I'll carry out the orders of my superior. Angmark is a dangerous man, Sir Thistle. He's got a number of advantages over. Well,、him. it's my duty to send him back to Polypolis, except that he's probably safe, since I haven't the remotest idea how to find him. You know, an outworlder can't hide behind a mask—not from the Cyrenees, at least. There are four of us here at Fan: Rolver, Willibus, you, and me. If another outworlder tries to set up housekeeping, the news will get around in short order. Believe me. And what if he heads for Zundar? I doubt if he'd dare. On the other hand, what? What are you looking at, Sir Thistle? That forest goblin. Wait, Sir Thistle. Haxo Angmark, don't make a move or I'll kill you. I have a power pistol. You're under arrest. Sir Thistle, Sir Thistle, are you sure this is Angmark? I'll find out, Sir Kershaw. Angmark, turn around. Hold up your hands. Why do you molest me? I fear that a case of confused identity exists, Sir Forest Goblin. Sir Moon Moss seeks an outworlder in a Forest Goblin mask. He asserts that I am an outworlder. 
Let him prove his case, or he has my retaliation to face. I am sure that Sir Moon Moth does not mean... Let him demonstrate his case, or prepare for the flow of blood. Very well, I'll prove my case. When I pull off your mask, we'll see your face. That will demonstrate your identity. He sounded his dueling gong. Careful, he's taking out his scimitar and... Sir Forest Goblin, please put away your sword. The Moon Moth is not familiar with customs. Run for it, Thistle, or you'll be killed. Hurry! Run to Willibus's office. Lock yourself in. laughing. Show some respect. Take the boat offshore. Tonight we remain at Fan. I shall be in my quarters. Do not disturb me. Moon moth. Look at this. Gray skin, stupid lace flaps, this is a dignified presence for the consular representative of the home planets? If I still have the position when Cro-Martin hears about Angmar getting away. Computoid, connection mode to slave quarters. Rear deck, connection mode to slave quarters. Toby. <laughs> I am honored by your communication, Sir Thistle. Tomorrow morning, you and Rex take the long oars, scull the houseboat out to Outworlder's Cove. Contact me when Sir Rolliver, Sir Wellibus, and Sir Kershaw have also docked their houseboats. As it pleases, Sir Thistle. What? Uh, what is it? Uh, Master, now Sir Rover has also docked his houseboat. Also? Uh, what, what time is it? Toby, who else has docked their houseboat? Why didn't you call me? Master, if it pleases you, the first houseboat to dock was Sir Willibus. Knowing you were asleep, it was for your comfort that I waited until now to give you the message. Is Sir Wellibus still here? As it shall be, Master. Sir Wellibus has already departed his houseboat. <sighs> and what of Sir Rover? Master, to enlighten you, Sir Rover wearing his tarnbird has also climbed to the dock. There, he was not pleased to speak to a sand tiger. Not please, Sand Tiger. Toby, do you know who the Sand Tiger was he was speaking to? Master, though I did not have the great opportunity to acquaint myself with the identity of the Sand Tiger, I am pleased to announce that the Sand Tiger has boarded our houseboat and now wishes to communicate with you. Me? He's aboard? Oh, where's my... Oh, 
you're already... I, um... <laughs> and what is your business, Sir Sandtiger? Dawn over the Bay of Fan is customarily a splendid occasion. The sky is white with yellow and green colors. When Muriel rises, the mists burn and rise like flames. He who sings derives a greater enjoyment from the hour when the floating corpse of an outworlder does not appear to mar the serenity of the view. What? While I made my way to your houseboat, my slaves have linked the corpse to the stern of your vessel. He floats there now, maskless. You will wish to administer whatever rites are prescribed in the outworld. He who sings wishes you a good morning and now departs. What? Excuse me. Oh, my God. Computoid, open report composition mode. Status on Haxo Angmark. Report composition mode open. Requested Haxo Angmark. Capture dead or alive. Stage condition of capture. Dead. Very dead. State details. I... I am looking at the body of a man floating alongside my houseboat. It looks like his age is um, 45 to 50, medium build, nothing unusual. State hair color. Uh, sort of brown. Describe features. His features are uh, bloated. State cause of death. I, I have no idea how he died. Reconfirm remains are those of Haxo Engmark. Who else could it be, right? Rover and Wellabus have already disembarked and gone about their business. Oh, although it could be Matthew Kershaw. I haven't seen him. And No, no, scratch that idea. I see his houseboat over there, tying to the dock. And there he is, jumping ashore. He's in his cave owl mask. That's Kershaw, all right. So uh, my three outworlder colleagues have been accounted for. This is obviously the corpse of Angmark. Your assignment is complete. Reformat formal report in preparation for transmission. Reformatting. No, wait, hold it. Return to report composition mode. Resuming report composition mode. Kershaw told me that another outworlder would be quickly detected here on Cyrene. Angmark might possibly still be at large, and he could keep hidden, but... No, forget it. Delete last thought. Resume previous function. Toby! Master, it is to you I offer myself. You and Rex see that a suitable container is brought to the dock and that the corpse is transferred to the container and that the container is conveyed to a suitable place of repose. Should I be needed, I will be at the landing field with Sir Rover transmitting a message. Now move! Sir Thistle, you startled me. One moment, let me close the door. Ah. What brings you out so early? Have you been in my office long? Your slave let me in about an hour ago. I've been waiting for a response to my message. Oh, well, 
You know, there's no telling how long these things take. Trans-space transmission times vary so much. Sometimes messages snap through in microseconds, sometimes they wander through unknowable regions for hours. And there are several authenticated examples of messages being received before they've been transmitted. I see. Um, so, what is so important you need to wait here for a response? It concerns the body I found tied to my boat this morning. I'm communicating with my superiors about it. That sounds like an incoming message. You seem to be getting an answer. I'd better attend to it. I'll load it into your computoid. Oh, why bother? I've been dealing with your slave. He seems efficient. It's my job. I'm responsible for the accurate transmission and receipt of all spacegrams. I'll come with you, Sail Rover. I've always wanted to watch the operation of the equipment. I'm afraid that's irregular. Give me your computoid, thank you. I'll have your message loaded in a moment. But... I'll turn on the monitors so you can hear it as it downloads. Download mode instituted. Initial outgoing message text. To Castle Cromarton at Polypolis. Outloader found dead. Possibly Engmar. Age 48. Medium physique. Brown hair. Other means of identification lacking. Await acknowledgement and or instructions. Signed, Edward Thistle. Here is your computoid. What? Oh, yes, thank you. Um, incidentally, Sarah Rover, may I inquire about the color of your hair? Me? I, I'm quite blonde. Why do you ask? Oh, just curious. <laughs> now I understand. My dear fellow, what a suspicious nature you have. See my tarnbird mask parts at the back. Look at my neck back here. Blonde. Are you reassured? I guess so. Uh, by the way, do you have another mask you could lend me? I'm sick of this moon moth. I'm afraid not. But all you have to do is go into a mask maker's shop and make a selection. Right. Right, of course. What was I thinking? Good morning, Sir Moon Moth. Oh, what a remarkable mask, Sir Willibus. I've never seen you in that one before. Those are green glass prisms and all those silver beads. Yes, yes, they are. Uh, what can I do for you, Sir Thistle? I won't take too much of your time, but I have a rather personal question to put to you. What color is your hair? Black. I have curly black hair, as you can see in the back. Does that answer your question? Completely. What color? <laughs> what little remains is black. Uh, why do you care about my hair color? Curiosity. Oh, come on, come on. There's more to it than that, Sir Thistle. Here's the situation, Sir Kershaw. A dead outworlder was found in the harbor this morning. His hair was brown. I'm not entirely sure, but the chances are uh, two out of three 
that Angmark's hair is black. How do you arrive at that probability? The information came to me through Rolver. Rolver has blonde hair. If Angmark has assumed Rolver's identity, he would naturally alter the information that I received from Polypolis this morning. Both you and Wellibus have black hair. Huh. What you're saying is you feel that Haxo Angmark has killed either Rolver or Wellibus, or myself, and that he assumed the dead man's identity? <laughs> Am I right so far? You're the one who suggested that Angmark couldn't set up another outworld establishment without giving himself a Let me continue with this. Rover delivered a message to you stating that Angmark was dark and then announced that he was blonde? Yes. Can you verify that? I mean, for the old Rover? I've never seen Rover or Willibus without their masks. Hmm. If Rover is not Angmark, if Angmark does have black hair, then both you and Wellibus come under suspicion. Very interesting. Uh, for that matter, you yourself might be Angmark. What color is your hair? My hair brown, see? Well, you can give me a peek at your hair, but you might be lying to me about the text of the message. You can check with Rolver if you care to. <sighs> Unnecessary. I believe you. What about the voices? You've heard all of us before and after Angmark arrived. Isn't there some indication there? Not really. I'm, I'm so alert for any evidence of change that you all sound rather different. And even though there are mouth openings, the masks change your voices a little. <laughs> Before Angmark's arrival, there were Rolver, Wellibus, Kershaw, and Thistle. Now, for all practical purposes, there are still Rolver, Wellibus, Kershaw, and Thistle. Who's to say that the new member isn't an improvement over the old? But it so happens that I have a personal interest in identifying Angmark. My career is at stake. I see. This situation then becomes an issue between yourself and Angmark. You won't help me? Not actively. Uh, I've become pervaded with Cyrenese individualism. I think you'll find that Rolver and Willibus will have the same response. All of us have been here too long. Anything else? No, but I do have a favor to ask you. I'll oblige if I possibly can. Give me or lend me one of your slaves for a week or two. <laughs> I hardly like to part with my slaves. They know me and my ways and they... As soon as I catch Angmark, you'll have him back. Anthony! Come here, Anthony! Now you sure you wouldn't like to have lunch, Sir Thistle? Spiced fish, shredded bark of the salad tree, and a bowl of native currants. It's so rare I have time between space grand reception to sit and eat. Well, I... Jonathan! Quickly set a place for Sir Thistle. He's joining me for lunch. Please sit, sit. Oh, thank you. And, uh, how are the investigations proceeding? Well, Sir Rolver, I'd hardly like to claim any progress. I, uh, assume that I can count on your help? You have my good wishes and my pistol, Sir Thistle. Yes, but uh, more concretely, I'd like to borrow a slave from you. Temporarily, of course. Whatever for? I if it's all right with you, I'd rather not explain. But you can be sure. It's important. Jonathan, you are to go with Sir Thistle immediately. 
And before you go, Jonathan, you may cancel Sir Thistle's lunch. I'll be dining alone. That's a reasonable request. Why not? Thank you, Sir Willibus. Uh, yes, Master. Whatever you wish, Master. Is Paul to your satisfaction, Sir Thistle? Or would you prefer a young female? <laughs> uh, he'll do very well, Sir Willibus. I'll just need him for a few days. He'll take care of what I want. Are you sure I can't interest you in a young female? Well, the boy can take care of what you want, but the girl can take care of what you need. <laughs> Unless, of course, it's the other way around. <laughs> oh, Sir Thistle, welcome. So, has my slave Jonathan been... Helpful to you? Yes, I needed some help, a chart I was compiling. Ah. So, did you come to arrange for passage on the Buenaventura? That's why I'm here today, Sir Rolver. Yes, you'd better reserve passage for one. Hmm, back to the world of maskless faces. Faces. Everywhere, pallid, fish-eyed faces. Mouths like pulp, noses knotted and punctured, flat, flabby faces. I don't think I could stand it after living here all this time. Luckily, you haven't become a real Cyrenese. But I won't be going back. I thought you wanted me to reserve passage. I do. For Haxo, Angmark. He'll be returning to Polypolis. In the brig. Well, well, so you've picked him out? Of course. Haven't you? He's either Wellibus or Kershaw, that's as close as I can make it, and so long as he wears his mask and calls himself either Wellibus or Kershaw, it means nothing to me. But it does mean a great deal to me. What time tomorrow does the lighter go up? 11.22 sharp. If Haxo and Mark's leaving, tell him to be on time. Is the owner of this houseboat still aboard? Answer quietly, as it pleases, Sir Moon Moth. Master, while I have been sitting here on the dock, the outworlder in the mask of scarlet feathers, black glass, and spiked green hair has found it in his best interest to stand upon the deck. Tiring of this location, he has since re-entered the cabin of his houseboat. Fine. Mark, please don't argue or make any... Do you have his weapon, Gabriel? Good. Bind the fool's arms. Hmm. I thought... Oh, the red, black, and green mask was me? 
Take off your mask, Gabriel. See? Just the black cloth of a slave, Thistle. I, on the other hand, wear a mask of black metal with a knife blade nose, with eyelids that are socketed, and with three crests running back over the scalp. <laughs> well, if you were smarter, you would recognize it as a dragon tamer. <laughs> as if you qualify to be called a dragon. <laughs> I trapped you very easily. Yes, I guess you did. Have you finished knotting his wrist, Gabriel? Go... Get to your feet, Thistle. Sit in that chair. All right, relax, Thistle. Your arms are tied securely. <laughs> um, mind if I sit? How did you fix on me? I admit to being curious. Well, come now, Thistle. Can't you recognize that I've won? Don't make affairs unpleasant for yourself. And you know, I can make them unpleasant. I operated on a basic principle. A man can mask his face, but he can't mask his personality. Aha, uh -huh, interesting. Proceed. I borrowed a slave from you and Rolver and Kershaw. I questioned them. What masks had their masters worn during the month before your arrival? I prepared a chart and plotted their responses. Charts? <laughs> oh, fascinating. Reminds me of my school days. Rolver wore the tarn bird about 80% of the time, the remaining 20% divided between the sophist abstraction and the black intricate. Wellibus had a taste for the heroes of the Candation cycle. He wore the Chelican, the Prince Intrepid, the Sea Vane most of the time, I think six days out of eight. The other two days he wore his Southwind or his Gay Companion. Kershaw, who was more conservative, preferred the Cave Owl, the Star Wanderer, and two or three other masks he wore at odd intervals. <laughs> well, this is quite funny. The slaves proved quite an accurate source of information, didn't they? They were. My next step was to keep watching the three of you. Every day I wrote down what masks you wore and compared it with my chart. Rolver wore his Tarnbird six times, his Black Intricate twice. I'm amused to remember all this. Kershaw wore his Cave Owl five times, his Star Wanderer once, his Quincunx once, and his Ideal of Perfection once. Wellibus wore the Emerald Mountain twice, the Triple Phoenix three times, the Prince Intrepid once, and the Shark God twice. Mm, 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 mm. I see my error. <laughs> I selected from Wellibus's masks, but to my own taste. And so, as you point out, I reveal myself. <laughs> but only to you, Thistle. <clears throat> Kershaw and Rolver already ashore about their business. Well, I doubt if they'd interfere in any case. <laughs> They've both become good sirenes. Stand up, please. I know it's impolite point, Thistle. Do pardon my knife. No! There we go. My mask! My face is exposed! Now I just remove my mask and put on this moon moth. Gabriel! 
Daniel. Ignore his face. Carry this man out to the deck, down the gangplank, and onto the dock. See that he's set on his feet. Hangmark, no. I'm maskless. Now hold still. Oh. Stop wiggling. We need to fix this rope around your neck. Ah, there we are. Very good. Very good. You are now Haxo Angmark. And I am Edward Thistle. Welibus is dead. Soon, you shall be dead. <laughs> I can handle your job without difficulty. I'll play musical instruments like a nightman and sing like a crow. <laughs> I'll wear this moon moth till it rots. And then I'll get another. Oh, oh yes. And the report will go to Bolipolis. Haxel Angmark is dead. And everything will be serene. You can't do this. You can't do this. My mask, my face. His face! Please, please, my mask, my face. Set this man on his feet. Then return to the houseboat. And now I'll take up the rope of my prisoner. Follow me, please. Come along now. Don't make me yank your rope. Behold, the notorious criminal, Axel Angmark. Through all the outer worlds, his name is reviled. Now he is captured and led in shame to his death. Behold, Haxo Angmark! His face! His face! Please, please, I beg of you. Everyone behold the criminal of the outworld, Haxo Angmark! Approach and observe his execution! Angmark! I'm Edward Thistle! He's Angmark! Somebody please help me! Give me my mask. Give me a slave cloth. Anything, I beg you. See, in shame he lived. In maskless shame he dies. Moonmoth, we meet once more. Please stand aside, friend goblin. I must execute this criminal. In shame he lived. In shame he dies. I will take that rope, Moonmoth. No, no, please. Someone throw a cloth over this man's head. Cut his bonds. Friend, seize this moon moth. What? That's right, friends. Hold him. A week ago, you reached to divest me of my mask. You have now achieved your perverse aim with another. For shame, moon moth. Your strach is but worthless dung. But he is a criminal! He is notorious, infamous! What are his misdeeds? He has murdered, betrayed! He has wrecked ships, he has tortured, blackmailed, robbed, sold children into slavery! He has... Your religious differences are of no importance. We can vouch, however, for your present crimes, Moonmoth. Speak! Sir Hostler, this insolent moon moth nine days ago sought to preempt my choice's mount. 
And you, with the universal expert, tell us. I am a master mask maker. I recognize this moon moth outworlder. Only recently he entered my shop and derided my skill. He deserves death. Death to the outworld, monster! Death to the outworld! And as for you, we have pity, but also contempt. A true man would never suffer such indignities. <sighs> My friend Forest Goblin, you malign me. Can you not appreciate true courage? Tell me, would you prefer to die in combat? Or walk maskless along the esplanade? There is only one answer. First, I would die in combat. Maskless? I could not bear such shame. I had such a choice. I could fight with my hands tied and so die in combat. Or I could suffer shame and through this shame conquer my enemy. You admit that you lack sufficient strach to achieve this deed. I have proved myself to possess towering strach. I have proved myself a hero of bravery. I ask who here has courage to do what I have done? Courage? I fear nothing up to and beyond death at the hands of the nightmen. Then answer. Who here has courage to do what I have done? Bravery indeed, if such were your motives. Not a man among us would dare what this maskless man has done. Pray, Lord Hero, as you can see by my universal expert, I am a master mask maker. Step into my nearby shop and exchange this vile rag you're wearing for a mask befitting your quality. Lord Hero? Yes, Bright Skybird. I have only just completed a sumptuous houseboat. Seventeen years of toil have gone into its fabrication. Grant me the good fortune of accepting and using this splendid craft. Aboard waiting to serve you are alert slaves and pleasant maidens. There is ample wine in storage and soft silken carpets on the deck. Thank you, friend Bright Skybird. I accept with pleasure. But first, a mask. Will the Lord Hero consider a sea dragon conqueror beneath his dignity? By no means. I consider it suitable and satisfactory. Come, I shall go now to examine my new mask. <laughs> 